Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Jim McCormick. And before we get going here, just a couple of things I want to throw out. First of all, StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That is the mothership. That's where you need to go if you want to check out all, all of our podcast episodes, videos, blog posts, links out to social media accounts, including the landing page for this episode, which will be sure to uh, fill up with links to related content as well as some key outside sources. At the time we're recording this, our, uh, our other co-host, Christian, just put up a wonderful gallery about MDMA. That's right, tying into a previous uh, two-parter we did on MDMA slash ecstasy. And number two, you want to help out the uh, podcast here? Do you listen to us via iTunes? If you do, why don't you check out that iTunes page and uh, throw a nice review up there for us. Uh, give us a nice, some nice fresh um, feedback on how we're doing here, just to, just to tweak that algorithm a little more in our favor and help the show uh, continue on as it has been. All right, Robert, I noticed something about you. Ah, what's that, Joe? I notice you have blonde hair. I do. I do. Naturally now, occurring blonde hair. Naturally, so you don't dye. No, it just it just grows out of my my head this way. And you you weren't uh, struck by lightning or affected in some way by a god. No, 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 I I didn't witness any kind of pan-dimensional being and have my my hair change color as as is want to happen. Okay, know? so one can assume that you get your blonde hair from your genes. Yes. So you inherited it from your parents, right? That's right. Nice and nice and vertical. And there's nowhere else you could have gotten it from, right? Hmm. Well, unless I happen to have a run in with a gene stealer. Now, what is a gene stealer, Robert? Uh, well, a gene stealer. This is, uh, you know, in this episode, we're going to be talking about horizontal gene transfer, which is a very real thing. But my first uh, exposure to this uh, this topic really came in the form of tabletop gaming science fiction, specifically the Warhammer 40,000 uh, universe. Hold on. I'm putting on my seatbelt. Okay. Robert, Warhammer 40,000. Yes. Tell me. Okay. Uh, just to, without getting just too geeky about it all, and I know some of our listeners are, are, are certainly fans, if, if not of the tabletop game, then some of the video games and that have spun out of it and the overall world, the sort of expanded universe of it all. But, yeah, this is a, a tabletop board game in which um, – Far future fantasy armies battle each other. It's, uh, it started out, uh, uh, in the UK as this kind of, um, just sci-fi upgrade of an existing, uh, fantasy world that itself was kind of an amalgam of different elements, you know, Tolkien and Dungeons and Dragons and all these Conan things. the Barbarian? Conan the Barbarian, for of sure. Course. All of it, uh, you know, wrapped up into one. And then they took it, they put it in the far future, and then other th- elements began to, uh, spill into it. So it's kind of a beautiful genre mutt. Yeah, you know, they ended up borrowing a little bit here, a little bit here, and uh, and so if you look at Warhammer uh, 40,000 as a as a universe, you can definitely see bits and pieces of everything else, a little aliens, a little hellraiser here and there, event horizon, uh you name it, it probably has wormed its way in there at some point or another terminator, certainly. But uh but it still feels very unique and exciting and I, and I've always been a fan of it. Well, we all love space monsters here. I I get that you're heading towards a, a particular space monster. Yes, the Tyranid Gene Stealer. This is a, an influ- infiltration branch of an all-consuming hive mind from another galaxy. Okay. Uh, and the way that this plays out in the, the game world um, is that the, the Tyranid Hive uh, fleet is headed towards uh, our galaxy okay. in this far future uh, scenario. And so it deploys this gene stealer species ahead of time to a chosen planet. And so uh, these gene stealers are big, hulking, six-limbed killers. Uh, they're deadly in a stand-up fight, but their ultimate aim is to infect members of the planet's intelligent population with their own genetic material. They use a, an, an ovipositor-like tongue. They inject a tiny uh, embryonic <laughs> mass into the host organism. And this... Uh, this seed is largely inert, but it carries out three primary functions. Okay. Okay, so it's it uh, psychically enslaves the host mind to a localized version of the, the, the tyranid hive mind. Okay, so it's like one of those brain-stealing funguses. Yeah, like yeah, or any of these various uh, parasitic wasp interactions with a host, you know. Okay. It, uh, so it... it, it uh, enslaves the host mind, then it alters the host DNA, causing it to pass on hybrid gene-stealer genetics to its offspring while also infecting its mate. Oh, that's interesting. So the uh, the, 
the person that it's infecting isn't just a host. Like it doesn't implant an embryo in the body to, you know, develop there and then eventually burst out with lots of great joy and celebration. But <laughs> it, it puts its genes into your genome. Right. Yeah. And then after that, uh, it alters the host behavior more, forcing them to care for this monstrous hybrid that's born. Uh, and then uh, the monstrous hybrid and, and everyone else in this sort of growing gene stealer family continues to carry out the will of the, the hive mind, undermining defenses on the planet, uh, cr- producing less monstrous uh, host from generation to generation until they just blend in perfectly. And uh, and, and until they're in the, in the position to just... Uh, unstabilize the planet enough for the full-blown invasion to hit. I'm reminded of Patrick McGuhan in Braveheart when he's <laughs> speaking of uh, the people of Scotland. He, he says something like, if we can't get them out, we'll breed them out. <laughs> he does his creepy mustache twirling. Yeah, yeah, he would. Uh, he, that's pretty much the, the, the tyrannid approach here. So it's, I'm going to take control of your genome by putting my own genes in. Yeah. That's pretty terrific. Now, we have to say as a side note that, Robert, you showed me a trailer to some non-existent movie that looked like it looked like VHS uh, platinum. Oh, yeah. I loved this. What, what was the deal with this thing? Uh, so there has n- there is as so far, there has not been an official Warhammer 40,000 Gene Stealer movie. Uh-huh. Um, but there have been some fan trailers over the years. And uh, there's a if, if you go to stuff your mind dot com, uh, if you just type in Gene Stealer. Uh, one word into the search bar, you'll find a couple of posts in which I've embedded this. But yeah, some fans of 40K made uh, a trailer, a fan trailer for a non-existent fan film uh, about space marines ba- battling Tyranids. Basically, the, the the Space Hulk board game scenario, and it's oh, it's just it's delightful. It looked like one of those v- one of those grimy, grainy, low grade VHS movies you'd get from the 80s that had you know cyborgs in it. I think I've mentioned these. Before. They all came out after Terminator. Yeah. It's like once Terminator was out, bam, people knew what to do with their with their small budget for movie making. Yeah, just borging it up out there. Making right. all these, uh, you know, just th- throw up, throw some sort of a camera lens over your left eye and go at it. <laughs> exactly. Tape some electronics to your body mm-hmm. and and you are Borg grime to infinity. <laughs> uh, also, I noticed that some of the costumes in this thing kind of looked like members of Guar. Yeah, and I, I don't, does Warhammer, did that inspire Gwar? I don't know enough about Gwar to, to comment on that, but I mean, Gwar has that, they certainly have those like giant shoulder, uh, pad kind of thing going on, spikes that they do remind, either they were influenced by some of the space orc designs, especially in yeah. Warhammer, or it was the other way, or maybe it's a little bit of a transfer back and forth. Oh, okay. Yeah. A little lateral transfer. Yeah, I definitely get a, a Warhammer sense from looking at uh, Gwar on stage. Okay, well, sticking with sci-fi for just a minute before we get to the actual science, when I think about the idea of gene stealing in an alien species, I my brain obviously goes to one of my favorites, which is the alien universe, the, yes. the xenomorphs of, uh, of alien, aliens, alien three, and the others I don't pay attention to. Which I should add was definitely an influence on the creation of the gene stealers in Warhammer. Yeah. Uh, I, I can certainly see how that would be based on what you've described, be, because I am reminded of the alien life cycle. So so what happens in the life cycle of a xenomorph? It's kind of like insects we know here on Earth, sort of, sort of, yeah. uh, but with some kind of fantastical elements put in. But so you've got a queen that lays an egg. The egg hatches and out of the egg comes a little scuttling creature called a face hugger. Mm-hmm. And this is a parasite that finds a host and attaches itself to the host's face and then plants the seed of a larval organism inside the host. So grabs your face, it sort of squirts eggs in your mouth, mm-hmm. and then down in your torso, the larval organism grows. This is known as a chest burster because it pops out of your chest, uh, one in the most famous scene from the first movie. Uh, but it also seems to, at least according to definitely by the third movie, this is clear, that it incorporates significant portions of the host animal's genome, or at least its hereditary traits, which would have to pretty much come from its genome, as far as we know. Um, and so the chest burster emerges from the host, and it carries phenotypic traits of the host organism. So, for example, a chest burster that comes out of an adult human is bipedal. 
but an alien that pops out of a dog or another four-legged animal strides on all fours. Ah, and so, this is the the example we see in the third alien film. Right. So it's it's obviously getting something from its host. It's not just uh it's not just dwelling in the host, but it's learning something about body plans and behavior from the host organism. And that's kind of interesting. Yeah, I mean, in the in sort of the alien world, depending on you know what uh, origin story or origin theory you want to go with, like this thing is either evolved or designed to just wipe out uh, a planet's uh, native uh, population. Right, and so it would make sense that it then steals from the most successful um, creatures on that planet. Exactly. It, it. What better way to adapt to any native ecosystem than to steal the traits of the the thing that already survives there? Yeah. So. Any, anyway, I, I think that's a really clever feature of the alien universe design, and I, I've always kind of liked that. But here's where we get to the real science, because if we're talking about organisms getting traits from other organisms, typically how does that occur in nature? The obvious answer, the one everybody already knows and, and the thing that's been talked about and understood in biology for for decades now or more than decades, I guess. Uh, going back for a long time, we've, we've understood the general principle of vertical gene transfer. Even before we understood what role DNA played in, in the transmission of genes and exactly how, uh, even before Mendelian genetics, we had a basic idea that you can inherit traits from your parents. Yeah. So this is sexual and asexual reproduction. Yeah, whichever brand of, uh, of reproduction you prefer or, or practice, uh, we're talking again about vertical gene transfer, up and down. Think of a, a family tree, right? Yeah. It, go, it goes down. Mm-hmm. It doesn't go sideways. It doesn't go up. It goes down. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, it, again, a biological parent passes its genes onto its biological offspring. In the case of sexual reproduction, two sets of conspecific genes merge. Right. And in the case of asexual reproduction, uh, you know, you basically have kind of a cloning scenario on. They rely entirely on mutation for variation in their DNA. So there's very little uh, differentiation uh, in the offspring. Mm-hmm. Now, many organisms also engage in both. It's worth uh, saying you do have some, very, right. you know, very strictly asexual uh, uh, creatures out there, you have some strictly sexual creatures, but then you have uh, some that engage in both, depending on uh, what the the reproductive climate happens to be. Sure, like you might have a plant that can produce uh, spores, but then also do uh, uh, do pollination, you know, sexual yeah. reproduction. Like uh, the hydra, as I remember, is an example of this. Not mm-hmm. the mythical hydra, but of course the uh, the the real natural world hydra yeah. uh, can reproduce asexually by budding, or it can produce pr- reproduce sexually depending on what it has at its disposal. Wouldn't it be great if we had that option? That'd be so strange to live in a world <laughs> where humans. So you can reproduce sexually if you want to. Maybe uh, gain some resistance to parasites and and strengthen your genome by recombination with another. You can sexually reproduce, but if you're in a pinch and you need to have kids and and a healthy mate is not available, you just clone yourself. Yeah, I think that's where we may be going, you know. And uh, <laughs> and it's I think it's not going to be that weird of a thing when it becomes a a regular viable everyday option for personal reproduction. Well, that probably deserves an episode of its own sometime in the future. Oh, certainly. Yet even this uh, near-future cloning scenario we're talking about, this is still vertical gene transfer. It's still parent-to-child, parent-to-offspring. Exactly right. And so this has led us to develop a sort of loose model of evolution of life on Earth that's referred to usually as the tree of life. This is evolution as Darwin imagined it in, uh, in On the Origin of Species. Now, the subject of today's episode is going to complicate the applicability of this model, but we'll get to that in a minute. So what is the tree of life? The tree of life says uh, parent organisms pass their genes on to offspring. So you have to imagine sort of an arrow starting at the top of a page and traveling down. Mm-hmm. And throughout the process, variation is introduced through independent mutation. So there's an error in copying of DNA and a random change is introduced for good or for ill, and then through natural selection, uh, the advantageous changes are preserved and the ill changes are erased. 
And so eventually, over time, enough mutations enter the gene pool of an isolated population that it becomes sufficiently different that we consider it a different species. And then a new arrow splits off of the main arrow as it runs down the page. And this becomes a branch in the trunk of the tree of life. Now, you have to imagine that to account for all of the life on Earth, this is happening millions and millions of times, mapping out all of the organisms on the planet as branches peeling off of the trunk and off of other branches, just sort of pouring down the page like a genetic waterfall. And Ooh, that's, like that. that's the tree of life. But you notice that all of the movement on the page is, as we've said, vertical. It's going from the top to bottom. Now, what if there were a way to get genetic information to travel in a different direction along the page? Uh, presumably, it can't travel from bottom to top, right? Because no. if the top to bottom direction is the arrow of time, essentially. Yeah, then you're destroying causality and exactly. the universe turns inside out. Yeah, so you can't travel back up the page unless you get a gene that gains a mutation permitting time travel. <laughs> uh, is that part of Warhammer 40,000? Ooh, no. No, they, uh, as far as I know, it isn't, but they do use event horizon style, um, uh, faster than light to travel. Uh oh. Yeah. Oh man. Another reason I got to check this out. But anyway, <laughs> you can't go back up the page. But what if you didn't have to go straight down? What if a gene could travel sideways across the page rather than straight down? And this gets to the, the concept that we're going to be focusing on today. It's horizontal gene transfer. Uh, so I want to back up and talk about a, a sort of fascinating precursor experiment to the, the main concept that we're getting to. And this is something that's known as Griffith's experiment. So in 1928, before we even knew that hereditary traits were passed on through DNA, an English bacteriologist named Fred Griffith published findings from a really weird experiment uh, and unfortunately, it involved killing some mice with pneumonia. Well, that's going to happen. Yeah. But anyway, uh, Griffith started with two different strains of bacteria, which was Streptococcus pneumoniae. Is that how you pronounce that? That sounds good to me. Pneumoniae. I, I believe in it. Okay. So th- th- there are two strains of this bacteria. You, you've got an R strain, and that stands for rough. And this strain of the bacteria is harmless. You can put it in a mouse, and the mouse is... Fine, its immune system takes care of it. It's just not a problem. But then there is an S strain standing for smooth, and that means that this bacterium is contained inside a little capsule. This is a a biostructure of a kind that helps the bacterium survive encounters with the host's immune system. Kind of a suit of power armor. (laughs) Yeah, it's a, yeah, it's like an armored exoskeleton for for the bacterium. It it allows it to resist uh, phagocytosis, where you know, where the uh, immune system cell engulfs and eats the other cell. And for this reason, the S strain is dangerous and it can kill any lab mice it infects. You, you take it on, you can get pneumonia and die. Okay, so, so what did he what did he find then when he injected this? So he found you inject mice with the harmless R strain and they're fine. Okay. It's rough. It's not going to hurt them. You inject mice with the S strain, they get sick and die. Okay. You inject mice with dead S-strain, and they're fine. So you can cook the S-strain to kill all the bacteria. And, of course, this dead bacteria doesn't hurt the mice. You can dead S-strain, no problem. But if you inject the mice with a combination of the two previously harmless injections, the R-strain and the dead cooked S-strain, the mice die. Ah, so the, ah. the harmless R strain is taking something. It's, it's, it's robbing the corpse of the, uh, of the, of the dead S strain and taking something from it and incorporating it into itself. That seems to be what's happening. It looks like the R strain bacteria are scavenging the dead S strain bacteria for the genes needed hmm. to produce those capsules to make them S strain bacteria that are virulent and will kill the host. And what do you know, Griffith looked at the dead mice from the final group and they contained live S-strain bacteria, even though he had not put any live S-strain bacteria into them. And this formed the basis of experimental confirmation for a process that would eventually come to be known as transformation. 
and and they didn't have the terms to fully understand or describe exactly what was going on yet. You know, like I said, th- this was before we even knew that DNA was the thing that passed genes from from parent to child. Right. Uh, but this was an example of what would come to be known as horizontal gene transfer. And so horizontal gene transfer, also known as lateral gene transfer, though I think I, I see the term horizontal more often used these days. Yeah. It seems like lateral is an older term. Uh, but it's the exchange of DNA between organisms of the same generation. So it's not that a bacterium divides and makes a copy of its genome, but that one way or another, some of its genes get inserted into the bacterium next door. So that's pretty weird and pretty cool on its own. Uh, so what are the primary avenues along which this kind of thing happens? Well, there are several different uh, HGT mechanisms, right. but scientists identify three core transfer methods. So we've got that first one, transformation, right? Yeah, transformation. That's the uptake of naked DNA, and it's a common method, but it's uh, mostly limited to bacteria, and it only permits the exchange of short DNA fragments. Right, so these little sort of severed circles of isolated DNA known as plasmids. Right. But then there's something called transduction. And this is the transfer of DNA from one bacterium to another via their uh, bacteriophages. Now, generally, this requires close related bacteria, and the transfer size depends on the size of the bacteriophage head. So this might be kind of a crude analogy, but uh, for, for a crude analogy, imagine if you could take on traits of another person's genome by bit- by getting bitten by the same mosquito that they were bitten by. So in this case, you've got a virus, a bacteriophage that that hits one bacterium, takes some of its genome, hits another bacterium, and now there's been some cross-pollination of the genes. Yes. And by the way, I would love to see that incorporated into a vampire movie sometime. Oh. Yeah. But to continue, the third mechanism is conjunction. This is the transfer of DNA by plasmid from a donor cell to a recumbent recipient. And this one requires cell-to-cell contact, but it can occur between distantly related bacteria or even bacteria and eukaryotic cells. And it can transfer long fragments of DNA. Okay, so this is something more like bacterial sex. And it's not really sex because... Obviously, they're not mm-hmm. sexually reproducing with full recombination like like, you know, humans would or something. Right. But at the very right. basics of it, it's yeah. uh, it's just kind of what's it's going a, on. It's a conjugal union of prokaryotic <laughs> cells. Uh, but but yeah, as you said, this can apparently happen between even some prokaryotic and eukaryotic cells. Uh, the difference for th- that, that's something we're going to be talking about in this episode uh, the main difference being that a prokaryotic cell doesn't have a, a distinct nucleus and a eukaryotic cell has a nucleus. Yeah, prokaryotes include, uh, you know, microscopic single-celled organisms, bacteria and cyanobacteria. Uh, but it, but then, uh, on the other hand, the eukaryotes, that includes pretty much everything else. Yeah. Okay, so those are the basics. But mm-hmm. we definitely want to stress that horizontal gene transfer is a subject that's continuing to evolve. Our understanding of it continues to evolve. Yeah, it's in fact one of the, I would say, according to what I've read, one of the biggest and most interesting controversies in microbiology and genetics today. Yeah, and and we continue, as we'll discuss, I mean, there's some big findings that continue to come out as we map various uh various organisms' genomes and discover, hey, there's some pilfered content in there. Yeah. Um, we've already touched on the early 20th century uh Origins of of this really are sort of our earliest uh, understandings of, of of horizontal gene transfer. Um, another big study that is often uh, mentioned out there uh, came in 1951, and that's when uh, Victor J. Freeman published studies on the virulence of bacteriophage infected strains of Corynebacterium diphtheria uh, in the Journal of Bacteriology. And this was a paper that explored the manner by which Avirulent strains of C. diphtheria infected with bacteriophage yielded virulent C. Uh, diphtheria strains. Okay, so that sounds kind of like, sort of like the Griffith study. Yeah. Uh, seeing how one, uh, one strain of a, of a bacterium can take on the properties of another one, but this time it sounds like it's talking about bacteriophage mediated uh, transfer. So, so that's more that, that transduction method, you know. Yeah. The mosquito bites one bacterium and then another. Okay, but you may notice so far that we're primarily talking about prokaryotic life here. Like, like we said, single-celled organisms like bacteria and archaea 
And, uh, and we've known for a while now that bacteria can trade genes horizontally. That, that's something that, as we've showed, we started to learn in the 20th century. Uh, but one of the most startling discoveries of recent decades is, is that we're starting to become aware how much horizontal gene transfer might actually be taking place and have taken place in the evolutionary history of eukaryotic organisms, more mm-hmm. complex organisms like plants, uh, fungi and animals. And generally speaking here, we're talking about the exchange of genetic material between different species. One species steals or lifts genes from another organism and incorporates the genes into its own genetic makeup. Now, at the end, I think we should talk about exactly how appropriate the metaphor of stealing or lifting is, because uh, because in many cases here, I think it'd be better to take a look at exactly what the real active agent in the process is. And of course, it's it's not going to be conscious. You know, you don't have an animal trying to steal the genes of another animal, as far as I know. But that's the thing. The more that we the more examples we see of it. Uh, the more ubiquitous um, horizontal gene transfer appears to be, mm-hmm. you you start realizing, well, this is this is not just some weird quirk that pops up among some you know very distantly related creature. This is more a part of the fabric of how how life works. Yeah, well, uh, it's it's a thing that should come more naturally to our intuitions than it does. I think because mm-hmm. because we tend to think of an animal or any organism's genome as a sort of like a platonic essence of what that creature really is. Right. But in fact, your genome is not an unalterable platonic essence. I mean, we know, of course, that it can uh, go through recombination. It can, you know, uh, be uh, mixed up with another genome through sex. It can have mutations that are introduced independently. Somehow we, we've internalized all of those exceptions and said, well, that's normal. That's part of the normal, uh, that's normal genetic modification. Yeah, that's a normal genetic modification, but you just don't get the sense that genes should be jumping between different species genomes like this, but it kind of makes sense because your genome is it's molecules. Yeah. You know, it, it's physical matter. It's not this little bundle of your soul coded into, the, you know, these little these little drawings of DNA. Yeah. And because it's molecules and physical matter, it is subject to physical contact and cross-contamination. Yeah. But it's certainly it's certain, the more we d- we discover about it really, the, the more we're having to to, to reframe how we understand uh, what life is and who we are. Well, I think we should switch to looking at some of these examples of eukaryotic or more complex organisms that have been suggested as alleged gene stealers. Yes, because for the same reason we started with a couple of sci-fi uh, examples to sort of set the stage for what horizontal gene transfer is, the specific examples uh, from the natural world, I feel like they work best to really let you understand what's going on and what mm-hmm. the ultimate impact is by looking at specific examples. Yeah. So we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we are going to look at some brand new research regarding the old water bear. All right, we're back. Uh, Joe, you're familiar with the, uh, the water bear, uh, der kleine Wasserbaren, the, um, <laughs> the tardigrade. I love tardigrades, man. The moss piglet. That- <laughs> the, the slow stepper, which, uh, which I love because that makes the tardigrade feel a little, uh, I don't know, like he, like he could be a, a hip hop artist, you know, the slow stepper. The, oh, that's really cool. I, yeah, I love tardigrades. For a long time here at How Stuff Works, the background on my computer screen was a, was a huge blown up, uh, microphotography image mm-hmm. of a tardigrade. And I don't know, something about these organisms is so cool. I, I always like reading new news about them, even if it's kind of boring news, honestly. It's mm-hmm. like, study finds tardigrades live in a lake in Minnesota also. Yeah. You know, <laughs> well, yeah, it's still tardigrades. I like it. Yeah, they, they're pretty great because at one hand, they're very alien looking, and yet they wind up looking kind of cute. They look a little cuddly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, they simultaneously look like something that you want to cuddle, but that if they were big enough, they would suck all your liquids out. Yeah. So when we're talking about uh, tardigrades, we're talking about members of the uh, phylum tardigrata. Uh, and there are more than 1,100 species out there in that phylum that we know about. And they're, they're just pretty much everywhere, right? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I mean, you'll find them in, in moss and lichens and hot springs, Antarctic ice, deep sea trenches, Himalayan mountaintops. I mean, they're uh, they're hardy little SOBs, and uh, they can even, as I'm sure everyone is familiar with from headlines, they can even survive the extreme cold and radiation of outer space. Yeah, I think they're often cited as examples of the kind of extremophile organisms that uh, that people like to invoke when they're talking about things like the panspermia hypothesis. Yeah. You know, like the idea that uh, that life forms. Uh, in early incipient life forms traveled from planet to planet or from star to star on, on comets or pieces of matter through space. And you think, well, how could they survive that? People point to these really hardy organisms like, uh, you know, a deep sea Vantarchia or, or tardigrades or something and say, well, look, this thing can survive almost anything. Yeah, because it's reasonably advanced, but very hardy. Yeah. Um, and, and this is crazy. You can just you can just find them about anywhere. And in, according to the International Society of Tardigrade Hunters, uh, you'll find their website, by the way, at tardigradehunters.weebly.com. Is that I'll, considered small game hunting? It's a very small game hunting. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> I'll include a link to that on the landing page for this episode at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Uh, but a- according to this website, uh, you can find them yourself by following some basic instructions on their website. The, I'm going to read out the short versions here, uh, but they provide more detailed instructions as well as some alternate user-submitted methods as well. Uh-huh. So you want to grab some terrestrial tardigrades. All you have to do is uh, put a little lichen, moss, or whatever <laughs> uh, in a shallow plate of water. Uh, you agitate your sample, and you look through the debris at the bottom of the dish for tardigrades. Then you grab a micro- microscope, and you look at tardigrades. Uh-huh. Uh, and if you want some marine tardigrades... You just go out to the beach, uh, you wait uh, till it's low tide, you scoop a bunch of sand at low tide, and you sort of work your way back up to the high tide mark, and then you uh, shock them with some fresh water. This, uh, this shocks them into letting go of their sand particles. And then you just grab a colander or a sieve and you just start <laughs> moving it around. Bam, you got some uh, tardigrades, you grab a microscope and you look at them. Okay, well, I'm going to have to do that. Now, does it matter that you actually stand at the beach and wait for low tide or can you just come back at low tide? I think you just come back at low tide. Okay. But but yeah, they're they're everywhere. Um and and as we've d- discussed, they're hardy as all get out. Well, I want to hear about some horizontal gene transfer. I assume that's what we're getting to. Yes, they're uh because it turns out they have uh, quite a bit of of foreign uh DNA, okay. Uh, which, which the the, the, head, the science headlines really had a lot of fun with this, saying, Anim- uh, you know, animal that can survive in space has foreign DNA, thus implying in the headline that they have foreign DNA from another planet. Right. But uh, so this that's not quite what's going on here. But it's still super <laughs> exciting. This is very very exciting uh, end of the tardigrade news uh, pool, I would say. Uh, so this is a new study that came, it was published uh, just in the last month in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, and it's from the univer- researchers uh, from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. So they sequenced the tardigrade genome, and uh, in doing so, they found that 17.5% of the creature's DNA is foreign in nature. So they're nearly one-sixth stolen goods. Man. Yeah. So And th- this is Are- the new record. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, because previously, uh, microscopic, uh, rotifers, uh, held, uh, the record for encompassing the most foreign DNA in their genome. Uh, but now the, the tardigrades come along and they, they pretty much doubled the pre-existing score. Wow. Um, so now hold on. Is that, is that the record for eukaryotes or would, does that include like bacteria and stuff? Yeah, I believe this is the eukaryote okay. record. Yeah. I don't know what the number would be for prokaryotes, though. It just seems like with them trading, uh, trading as much as they do. Yeah, my understanding is that it's higher among them. So, yeah, as it turns out, tardigrades acquire genes from various organisms. They get it from fungi, plants, uh, archaea, bacteria. Those are micro- microorganisms that are similar to bacteria in size and simplicity of structure, but they're radically different in molecular organization. Mm-hmm. But they mostly loot from bacteria. And the UNC researchers theorize that th- this just might be the source of uh, the water bear strength. It's because they're gene stealers. They yeah. harvest harvest the best genes from all the organisms. Yeah, because when you when you look at life on Earth, like the life that's able to thrive in the most extreme environments, you know, be it a you know around a, a deep sea thermal vent, yeah. or you know at the top of a mountain, the the deepest uh, part of the ocean, you're generally talking about bacteria, right? right. Yeah. And so the theory here is that yeah, they've basically stolen from the best. They've like the 
like the uh, the, the xenomorph, uh, uh-huh. it has gone after one of the most successful organisms on the planet and said, hey, I'm going to take some of what's working for that organism, and then I'm going to work exceptionally well. And as soon as the predators arrive, it's going to take their genes, too. Yeah. And then, yeah, the, the xenomorph is realistically going to win in any encounter. So how does this work? How does this go down? Well, the tardigrade, of course, is known for its ability to survive in extreme environments, such as extreme cold, extreme dry Uh uh, situations. And when it does that, its DNA breaks up. And then when it rehydrates, the cell membrane and nucleus around the DNA becomes permeable permeable enough for foreign DNA and molecules to leak through. Whoa. So as the tardigrade then rehydrates and essentially regenerates, it stitches its own damaged DNA and any foreign genetic bits together into a single patchwork genome. Now, it sounds to me, I, I don't actually know this from the mm-hmm. research, so I'm just guessing here. It sounds to me like that might be kind of a... I don't know, like a high risk strategy, like high risk, high reward, mm-hmm. uh, because what you just described, even though it might in many cases grant you access to some very useful genes that help you survive in tough environments, it sounds like it can also likely cause bad copying problems yeah. and introduce garbage into your genome and kill you. Yeah, a lot of uh, brundlefly tardigrades right. out there, you would think. And then those, I guess, would those would die out. And it would be the other strains that would survive. Or, or, I don't know, maybe it's got a good mechanism for making that not such a low-risk thing. That was just a... I I wonder about that. Well, it it, it does make me think back to how many different tardigrades we have. Again, over 1,100 different species that we know of. Uh So... That seems to, uh, to balance well with this idea that, uh, that they so, so easily can start incorporating, uh, new DNA via horizontal gene transfer. So that's the tardigrade, uh, again, a fabulous animal that probably deserves its own, own podcast episode outright. Uh-huh. But we know now, we, we knew it was an amazing critter before, and now we know that it is engaging in horizontal gene transfer. What else do we have on the superstar list here, Joe? Well, how about, I, I love this example because do you love coffee, Robert? I know, I know the answer. You, you, yes, you do love coffee. Of course you do. But do you know how much you should hate the coffee berry borer beetle? I do not. Well, it, uh, coffee berry borer beetle, also known as, uh, Hypothenamus hampei, it's this tiny, tiny beetle, like adults are between one and two millimeters, and it's a horrible, horrible pest on coffee crops. It is just the, the bane of coffee growers' existence. It's native to Africa, but now it lives pretty much anywhere coffee is grown, uh, and this beetle isn't just a pest, it is a gene stealer. Ah. So, uh, in February 2012, Research published in uh, PNAS revealed that the coffee berry borer beetle is a known case of an animal. So th- this is interesting because it's, you know, it's an insect. It's a mm-hmm. fairly complex animal. Yeah, we're moving up from tardigrades and certainly yeah. from some of the earlier examples. Yeah, it has stolen demonstrably beneficial genes from bacteria. And that's an interesting thing to point out. It's not just that it has a gene that looks like it came from bacteria, but we don't know what it does or it doesn't really help. It has a gene that very clearly helps the beetle survive. So it it acquired a prokaryotic upgrade pack. So the bacterial gene that the beetle has incorporated helps with the digestion of a particularly difficult food, the carbohydrates found in coffee beans. Uh, and you, you might be thinking to yourself already, well, yeah, I love coffee, but a creature cannot live by coffee alone. Like how much usable food energy is really there in a coffee bean? Yeah. I, I love coffee, but I would not want to try to survive on coffee. <laughs> Uh, I, that, that would just be a constant horrible existence of the fear coming in waves and waves. But the coffee berry borer beetle happens to have a gene known as HHMAN1, or man, would you say it man? HHMAN1, uh, which allows it to make a pro- protein called mananase, not mayonnaise, <laughs> uh, but mananase, and this protein is used in digestion to break down and digest a, a a kind of nasty polysaccharide sugar called, and I didn't make this up, galactomannan. Oh, galactomannan. Yeah, uh, before doing this episode, I'd never heard of galactomannan before. I looked it up. It They were not playing a joke. This is not an April Fool's article. That's the real name of that sugar. Uh, so the scientists believe that the beetle gene somehow came from the beetle's own gut bacteria. So 
Small-scale hybridization with one's own endosymbiont. Wow. This is a weird universe. Yeah, because, I, I mean, we've covered on the podcast here, and I feel like a lot of our listeners are probably, you know, caught on to the growing body of uh, uh, of science surrounding our own microbiome. But we yeah. still kind of think of that as this internal population, but not a population that's going to upgrade right. into management, right? Right, exactly, yeah. So the question is, how do they know that the beetle's gene for digesting this this horrible sugar found in coffee beans came from the bacteria, and it's not just some, you know, mutation or, or insect gene or something. Well, from what I read, I believe they're not 100% sure it came from the bacteria, but they think the evidence is pretty strong that it did. And the evidence includes the fact that the gene is not otherwise present in insects. Uh, it looks very similar to the bacterial gene for breaking down galactomannan. And the scientists discovered that the gene sits bookended by two sections of genetic code known as transposons, uh, also known as jumping genes. And so transposons were identified by the geneticist Barbara McClintock in the 1940s in corn. And I was just thinking we should do a whole episode about Barbara McClintock sometime. It would probably be the most interesting way you can possibly discuss corn for an hour. (laughs) Uh, But but anyway, so transposons, but she discovered this is the name for genes that can travel around and insert themselves into different places within a genome. They're, they're, uh, molecularly apt to move and insert in different places throughout the genetic code. So there we have an indication of alien DNA in the beetle plus a plausible method for insertion into the animal's chromosomes, at least at that level. But this does bring up an interesting question in uh, in the idea of horizontal gene transfer in complex animals like insects. How does it become part of the animal's genome from generation to generation? The prokaryotes are single-celled organisms without a defined nucleus, and they can pretty easily incorporate new genes into the genome. But with eukaryotes, how do you get the fugitive gene into the chromosomes inside the nucleus? And then furthermore, it's more complicated than that because you need to get them not just into any nucleus, not just in like the nucleus in the cells in your arm or something, if you want it to become part of the genome of the species continuing throughout the generations, it needs to get into the chromosomes in the nucleus of the germ cells, like the sperm or egg cells. And as far as I can tell, how this happens is not yet very well understood, uh, unless there's, there's research I, I'm not aware of yet. And if any of our listeners know about that, we'd, we'd love to hear about that because this part is fascinating. Mm-hmm. How how do the genes get in there for complex reproducing animals? Yeah, because there's no uh, there's no alien species coming in and shoving its ovipositor in, or, right? Or launching anything under your face. Uh, yeah, so so you can see at the molecular level how it might work mm-hmm. if you've got transposons at either end that can you know. So you can see how it fits into the genome once it's there, but how does it get to the genome? I don't know. There, there may be an answer to that I'm not aware of yet, but a, a very interesting question, at least. Yeah, indeed. Uh, but, hey, those are not the only examples of gene-stealing animals. What else? Uh, animals, plants, and all kinds of organisms. What else have we got? Yeah, for starters, we have Asian clams. The, they're strictly asexual, <laughs> but uh, these... Um, uh, hermaphroditic mollusks spice things up a bit to avoid just complete genetic stagnation. Okay. And so in this case, it means a little gene theft. Oh. Uh, while they generally fertilize their own eggs, they sometimes fertilize those of, of of another clam species. And this gives the resulting offspring an injection of fresh alien genes. Nice. Um, we mentioned um, rotifers earlier, um, the, the deloid rotifers. Uh, the sometimes they're referred to as the quote ancient asexuals. I don't really know anything about these. What's the deal? Oh, they're 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 pretty cool. They're an all female species of near microscopic animals, and they've been sex free for about eighty million years. <laughs> and they're you know they're they're a variety of them, and they look really cool. Um, you know when when you look at their their bodies uh, uh, under a microscope. Uh, and as we previously noted, they used to have the record for the most pilfered uh, genes uh, among the the eukaryotes. Uh, according, but according and according to a 2012 University of Cambridge study, that number was 10 percent of their expressed genes were pilfered from roughly 500 other species. So they they incorporate foreign DNA from fungi, plants, and bacteria, of course. 
while they're patching up their own ruptured cell membrane. So weird. So very similar, uh, it sounds like, to what we were discussing with the tardigrades. Okay. Then there's uh, Galderia sulfurari. These are a, a single-celled red algae that thrives in sunlit hot springs, but it also manages uh, uh, to stay alive in deep, dark depths. And the algae simply stole some genetic tra- traits from simpler bacteria and archaea organisms. Okay. Up next, this one is a, a very exciting uh, um, uh, organism to mention here, and that is Elysia chlorotica. So if you ever see a sea slug with the power of photosynthesis, you can rest assured that they stole it, right? They stole it. So photosynthesis. Yeah. The, the you know, the, the domain of, of plants. Yeah. I yeah. typically think that is sort of a fundamental uh, separator indicator for, for plants versus animals. So yeah. a plant can photosynthesize. It has the chloroplast that, that it needs. Animals don't have that. Except this one does because it stole it from algae. Um they they actually produce chlorophyll. They're a chlorophyll-producing mollusk. And the slugs even pass the chlorophyll-producing trait onto their offspring, uh, though they, they have to eat a bunch of algae to actually carry out that photosynthesis. <laughs> but, yeah, this is like an obvious trait. Like, it's one thing to say, oh, well, it turns out this organism, it has some traits that it stole. Like, this one, you could tell... Something as weird is going on. It's like a turtle on a fence post. You know, okay. you don't know how it got up there, but you know it had some help. And in this case, the help came in the form of horizontal gene transfer. Nice. I'd actually uh, read about that one a little bit before, and that struck me as one of the weirdest and most interesting because that's, um, you know, one one of the things that I've noticed in some of the literature is that most often these these stolen genes tend to have something to do with digestion or metabolism, Mm -hmm. which I think is interesting because most of the time they are coming from uh, simpler organisms like bacteria or something. So you're not going to steal a gene for, I don't know, making stag horns or something like that from bacteria, but very likely you might steal a gene for being able to process a certain type of molecule into food. Yeah. And, and and so that makes sense. But here here it's not a it's not a digestion molecule for like a, for a different type of sugar or something. It's for sunlight itself. I don't know. I, I find that very interesting. <laughs> well, you know, it's only fitting that since we started off talking about um, about the alien xenomorph. Yeah. Which of course has a lot in common with various, uh, um, parasitic wasps. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, it's perfect that we also get to include a little parasitic wasp action here. Right. In Science in 2009, there was an article called Polydnoviruses of Braconid Wasps Derived from an Ancestral Nudivirus. And that suggested that there, so there are these par- parasitic wasps that, right. uh, that they inject host caterpillars with these virus-derived particles that inhibit the caterpillar's immune system so that the wasps can implant their eggs in the caterpillar, and then the eggs can hatch and eat the caterpillar from the inside and get a nursery, get, get a wonderful little uh, little corpse nursery. Right. <laughs> and so where, where did the wasps get these virus-like particles that they inject into the, the caterpillar in order to inhibit the immune system? Well, the discovery is that the wasp genome learned how to make these particles by incorporating the genome of a virus about a ah. hundred million years ago. And so the suggestion is that it, it pulled in the virus's genome, said, you're part of my body plan now. And used that to make a pro- a byproduct of the structure of this virus to use as a weapon against these caterpillars. Wow! Now that that is incredible. Yeah. And up next, we have a plant. Uh, this is uh, it's not quite as exciting as parasitic wasps, but it concerns the sweet potato. Is this a sweet potato that stabs you with virus particles? Uh, no, fortunately not. Fortunately, it hasn't picked up that habit. But a 2015 study uh, by Ghent University and the International Potato Institute, <laughs> or or CIP, SIP, uh, they should have got a chip in there, an H in there somehow to, right. to make it chip. International Hot Potato University. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Oh, they published uh, in the journal uh, PNAS and uh, revealed that sweet potatoes from all over the world naturally contain genes from the bacterium agrobacterium. Uh, and in this particular article, they even go so far as to say that you consider you could consider this a, quote, natural GMO food product. Yeah, the implications for GMOs are kind of interesting. Yeah. Because, uh 
what a lot of people seem opposed to about GMO, I mean, there are a lot of different reasons people give for being opposed to, uh, to transgenic food crops, but a lot of it is just kind of like, that's not natural. Right. Uh, it's not natural to put genes from a bacteria or a fish or something like that into a plant in order to make it, you know, do whatever, be a more successful crop, be resistant to, uh, to, herbicides or, or pesticides or, or whatever it is they're doing with it. Now, I do think people should be uh, should have concerns about the methods used to produce the food they eat. Right. But this one particular concern like, oh, you know, transgenic crops, that's not natural. That seems untrue. It kind of is natural for plants to get genes from other places. Yeah, I think that's one of the that's one of the lessons uh, that this topic gives us, you know, that that we learn that. This uh, the horizontal gene transfer means that uh, this kind of genetic modification mm-hmm. occurs naturally, and it's not it's not merely to the the, the domain of, of very ancient organisms or entirely fictional organisms. Uh, it seems to be a part of life itself. Yeah. So, one of the strange things that you might be starting to wonder is if eukaryotic organisms like plants and animals and fungi. If they swipe genes from other organisms, does that mean that even the human genome contains a decent amount mm. of foreign DNA? And the answer is quite possibly. Huh. Uh, just this year in 2015, there was a paper published in Genome Biology called Expression of Multiple Horizontally Acquired Genes is a Hallmark of Both Vertebrate and Invertebrate Genomes. And they combine previous and new research to suggest a running total of 145 genes in humans that they think have leapt into the human genome from simpler organisms at some point in our evolutionary past. Uh, though, however, a, an interesting thing they point out is that fewer HGT genes seem to have showed up in the recent history of primates. I want to read a, a quote from from their findings. They say, Genome-wide comparative and phylogenetic analyses show that HGT in animals typically gives rise to tens or hundreds of active foreign genes largely concerned with metabolism. Like we were talking about earlier, a lot of these seem to have to do with how you can digest and make energy out of different kinds of foods. Uh, but picking back up with their, their words... Our analyses suggest that while fruit flies and nematodes have continued to acquire foreign genes throughout their evolution, humans and other primates have gained relatively few since their common ancestor. So I interpreted this to mean that as eukaryotes become more complex, their rate of gene stealing can generally be expected to decrease. So I could be mistaken about that interpretation, but that's what I took away from it. Well, yeah, I couldn't help but think of gene theft in these organisms, like thinking of each organism as, say, um, you know, a castle or some sort of a, a gaming, like some sort of a game scenario, right? Uh-huh. Like it's one thing for all this level of theft to be going on in, you know, among some crude huts uh, out there on the plain, but then for it to take place within the castle walls, uh-huh. for it to take place within the castle itself, for it to take place in the king's bedroom, yeah. uh, or in the throne room, uh, perhaps would be a better uh, analogy. That becomes it becomes increasingly more difficult to imagine it, and maybe that's the case. Well, yeah, and that is sort of what I was talking about earlier when I was bringing up this weird concern about you know we have cell nuclei, we mm-hmm. have you know we have all these things that would seem to make it harder for this kind of uh, genetic cross-contamination to occur. Yeah, so like we're trying to figure out yeah, what's causing it, how, what exact mechanism is taking place. It's kind of like looking at the scenario and saying, how's the thief getting in here? Yeah. Where is he or she hiding? Yeah. Uh, what's the escape route? We're trying to understand exactly how that works. Yeah. Uh, and so one thing about this last study I mentioned is it should be pointed out that I read at least a couple of comments from scientists essentially claiming not to be convinced that the authors had shown that these genes in complex animals like humans were project or uh, products of horizontal gene transfer. For example, there was a science magazine news write up of the study that uh, cited a dissenting opinion from the microbiologist, Jonathan Eisen. And while he didn't rule out HGT in complex animals, he wasn't like that can't happen. He just felt that the authors of the paper hadn't sufficiently ruled out other non-HGT explanations for the presence of these seemingly alien genes. Okay. Uh, but anyway, that's an interesting frontier that I think the science is still developing, and I'll, I'll be very interested to see what else we learn and uh, what comes of more review of this type of science. But I want to get back to the analogy I brought up earlier in the episode, this 
this model that has been so common in evolutionary thinking really since the time of Darwin, and it's it's the tree of life analogy. It seems that we're discovering all the time that even complex eukaryotic organisms trade genes with their contemporaries. And if this is true, I think it might be the case that the tree of life model, you know, flowing unidirectionally from trunk to branches, from top to bottom, isn't necessarily the best analogy anymore. Instead, maybe it should be more like the tumbleweed of life, (laughs) uh, where there is sort of a basic one-directional flow of the branches. They don't go back toward the the roots, but there's a whole lot of perpendicular cross-connections and knots and tangles, and that there might not be a single trunk at the beginning, but rather another strange knot of traded, crisscrossing genetic pathways. There's a great piece that came out in uh, Ian Magazine. It's a December 2014 essay called The Gene That Jumped by Farish Jabbar. And uh, I want to read just a quick quote from this. And we'll be sure to include include a link to this full um, essay on the landing page for this episode. Um, Jabbar writes, quote, standard evolutionary theory does not account for the possibility of complex organisms suddenly acquiring genes from other species, let alone how those foreign genes might change a creature for better or worse. Think of it this way. If the genomes of living species are flowers on different branches of the great evolutionary tree of life, horizontal gene transfer is a subversive wind whipping pollen from one part of the tree to another. I think that's beautifully expressed, and I really, really liked this essay. I uh, I, I recommend our listeners to check it out because yeah. I, I think it's an excellent overview of the subject we've been talking about today. Yeah, so if you find yourself thirsting for more about this topic and you're not sure where to go next, uh, I would yeah, I would highly recommend that that essay. Okay, so there's one last thing I do want to bring up before we we conclude our discussion of horizontal gene transfer, and it's. It's something about the analogies we've been using. Mm -hmm. Throughout this episode, we've spoken of the whole organism as a gene stealer. In in the case of this horizontal gene transfer, I'll take a gene from you, I'll take a gene from you, and I'll make it part of myself and pass it on to my kids. But I wonder if it would make more sense to think about it backwards. Instead of gene stealers, whole organisms as gene stealers, to think about a gene invader Mm. looking for a suitable host. Uh, because from a certain point of view, you can say it's not the individual or even the entire genome that is the agent driving evolution, but it's that each individual gene within a genome competes for its own survival and reproduction. So if you think about each genome sort of like an ecosystem for genes, right? if a gene can survive outside the original ecosystem where it originated by invading a different genome, why wouldn't it do that, too? Why not spread to more fertile territory? And if it contributes to the overall health of the ecosystem in this, and that would be the analogy, but meaning it provides a survival advantage to the owner of the host genome, all the better. Um, so I, I think that's another interesting way of putting thinking about it to sort of flip this on its head, because uh, we know certainly that these organisms are not attempting to steal genes consciously. Right. Uh, but but the genes are out there and that uh, and that the the whole complexity of biological life is driven by the desire of each gene to make as many copies of itself as possible. And we've discovered a new way it can do that. It doesn't just divide and, and copy. It doesn't just sexually reproduce, but it can also kind of drift. <laughs> it, yeah. it can also invade and and take over somebody else's house and become part of the new neighborhood. Yeah, I I, I love the the way you put this because it does I mean it drives home how difficult it is for us to to take into account that there's no uh, there's no consistent us. There's no that, that we are not set in stone. That yeah. certainly and, and that works on several different levels. I mean, the, the me that I am now is not the me that I was uh, 10 years ago or the person I'll be 10 years from now. Yeah. We're this continually changing individual. And even that individual is kind of a, a council of selves. And, and then that, that, in, that, in the individual body, you know, we've uh-huh. discussed the micro uh, genome. We've discussed all the, the individual parts that make, make us up as a whole. We're essentially this large uh, corporation of smaller things. <laughs> and so, yeah, when when one employee jumps and joins this corporation, 
We might think, oh, we have acquired an individual. We've acquired a trait. We've acquired a skill set, acquired a skill set into our being. But then on the other hand, there is an individual worker who simply said, hey, there is a corporation that I can thrive in. Right. And, uh, and I'm better at doing what I do than several of the current employees. I think I could, I could carve out a place for myself in this new home. Yeah. Economics starts with the individual, right? Yeah. There you go. So really, we are like the Warhammer 40, 40K universe. We, we're taking bits of Tolkien. We're taking bits of uh, of Conan the Barbarian. We're taking bits of Alien, of Event Horizon, maybe of Coneheads. Why not Coneheads? I would love to see a Conehead army in the Warhammer 40,000 universe. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, Coming but, straight from France. Yeah. But yeah, I think I think Warhammer uh, 40,000 is an, is an excellent uh, metaphor for uh for the sort of uh, a view on life that horizontal gene transfer gives us, that that all these elements come together, and even though they're all kind of pilfered and stolen and acquired, they all take on a unique form of life uh, in the uh, the ultimate individual that you see, in the ultimate franchise that you uh, that you play with on your tabletop. I was about to say that's deep, but instead, what I'm going to say is that's broad. Well put. Well put. All right. So, uh, so there you go. Horizontal gene transfer. And, uh, and again, we'll include some, uh, some resources for you to move on to if you, you feel like you, you want some more depth on this particular topic. Right. Uh, in the meantime, again, head on over to stufftheblowyourmind.com. That's where you'll, you'll find all the podcast episodes, blog posts, videos, links out to our social media accounts, you name it. Again, the landing page for this episode will include uh, probably some sort of cool little picture and some links to related um, podcast episodes, articles, etc. on the website, as well as links out to uh, some key resources we think that you will find uh, engaging, such as that uh, Ian Magazine piece. And if you want to get in touch with us and let us know your favorite gene stealer in science fiction, or fantasy or horror, or if you want to let us know about your favorite gene stealer or, let's say, uh, genetic invader <laughs> in, in real life nature, you can email us and let us know at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. <laughs> For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. 